Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today, my guest is Emily Best from Seed and Spark. She's the CEO and founder of Seed and Spark, and Seed and Spark is not only a crowdfunding platform for independent filmmakers, but it's designed to create an ecosystem to build sustainable middle-class lifestyles for filmmakers. And as you'll hear, Emily points out the amazing success rate they've had uh, because they focus um, directly with uh, independent filmmakers as opposed to some of the other crowdfunding platforms that can branch out to like tech startups, uh, other artistic endeavors and whatnot. But uh, what Seed and Spark does is truly unique. And, you know, I didn't really know too much about it prior, but the more I delved into it, the more that uh, Emily shared the benefits to filmmakers, it's uh, it's worth checking out. And it's something I might think about doing in some upcoming projects of mine. But before we get started, if you like these podcasts, I actually could use a little love on iTunes. If you go to iTunes, just make sure to subscribe to the podcast. The more subscriptions I get, um, the more exposure Film Trooper Podcast gets out there in the iTunes world. And then on top of that, if you can, just leave a ratings and review. And speaking of ratings and review, I need to read some because I haven't read any in a while. And uh, here we go. Here are some reviews, and this one is from GS3. Film Trooper is great. The film business is changing, and Scott is bringing cutting-edge info about it. Every low-budget movie maker needs to hear this podcast. It's inspiring and practical. Thank you, GS3. I really appreciate it. Um, then there's Fantastic, Insightful, and Entertaining by Locke Nessa. I think it's Nessa or Nessie. Uh, Film Trooper podcasts are the best filmmaking podcasts I've ever heard. The content is extremely helpful, informational, easy to follow, entertaining, and inspirational. Give it a try. You'll be glad you did. I am. Thank you so much, Locke Nessa. And um, there's another one from Unstuckable. Awesome business insights for filmmakers. Filmmaking is an art, and few filmmakers want to think about the business side of their craft. Scott offers practical advice and great interviews every aspiring independent filmmaker needs to hear. Pour your heart into your film, but also remember, it's a product that has value. Anyhow, so those are a little bit of the latest uh, ratings and reviews that uh, the podcast has gotten, and I really, really appreciate them. And here's the thing. If you're a filmmaker and you leave a review in iTunes, make sure to like kind of ping your film project and that way I'll uh, give it a shout out on the next podcast uh, episode. If there's anything I can do to help get your project out there so people know about it, just let me know. So without further ado, I want to introduce Emily Best of Seed and Spark and her little dog, uh, Alistair. So you'll hear her little dog in the background sometimes. You'll hear this like sound like, well, that's her adorable little Ewok dog. I don't know what they call it. She calls it a fraggle dog. That's if anybody remembers Fraggle Rock. So without further ado, here she is, Miss Emily Best on the Film Trooper podcast. But here I am with uh, Miss Emily Best of Seed and Spark. And I kind of just want to know if somebody doesn't know anything about you, like, and you met them in like a coffee shop and they only had a few uh, minutes to say, uh, explain like who you are, what you do. um, How would you explain it? Yeah, so my company has a, we're a crowdfunding and distribution platform for independent filmmakers focused on help making, uh, helping filmmakers build sustainable, lasting relationships with growing audiences. So um, the big vision of the company is to be part of the movement that grows a creative middle class in the world. Um, and we're doing that by um, helping filmmakers build sustainable careers that pay them for the work they do making films. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's real succinct. succinct. That's really cool. So the, here's a cool thing about what I saw from Seed and Spark is um, like what – like if someone goes, oh, it's kind of like a Kickstarter. Like how would you differentiate, you know, to, to, to kind of share the benefits of the filmmakers that go, look, yeah. this is sort of – this is why Seed and Spark is really kind of different and cool um, I know what it is, but I want to, you know, I don't want to sure. do the sales pitch, but you go No, ahead. totally. Um, so a, a few things. One is that Kickstarter and Indiegogo, those are funding platforms. Um, we're fundamentally an audience building and distribution platform. The crowdfunding tool as we see it is the way that you initiate a really involved relationship with your audience. But the end goal of, um, of making a movie is more than just 
getting it made. It's obviously getting it seen. And it's also getting it seen by enough people that could warrant making the next movie. Um, and so this is a very particular need of, uh, of filmmakers. Um, you know, if you've ever read Kevin Kelly's amazing article about a thousand true fans, um, there is a direct connection with an audience that really loves what, you know, loves your voice and what you're doing, um, who will sustain you. They'll spend, you know, one or two hundred dollars a year funding your projects, buying your merchandise, buying your movies, uh, whether it's tickets, events or festivals. Um, and these are the people where if you know who they are and you, you really keep up a direct relationship and you make sure they feel involved, they can actually sustain you, you know, to make a living throughout your lifetime. And as, you know, audiences are growing more and more fragmented across more and more platforms, the onus has really shifted onto the filmmaker to establish and maintain this relationship um, for a couple of reasons. The first is that if you go to a festival and you get picked up by a major distributor, you sell your audience to the distributor. So if you've been building Facebook pages or social media accounts for the film, you don't keep those. Those go to the distribution company. And any uh, data or contact information accrues up to the distribution company. And so when you go on to make your next film, you're sort of starting over from zero trying to figure out who your audience is again. So um, the more you can grow and expand your audience from project to project, the bigger and bigger projects you can make without the permission of a production company or a distributor. And certainly filmmakers who come with large audiences get their stuff funded by you know, equity investors more often. So we think it's really a path to growth and sustainability for filmmakers. Um, by sort of you know, rough comparison to the other platforms, um, the crowdfunding tool works like a wedding registry, which is to say uh, filmmakers list the individual items they need, and supporters can buy or loan those items directly. Yeah, that's, that, that aspect is a genius, by the way. And you know, to really kind of differentiate between uh, the other crowdfunding camp, um, platforms out there, meaning like they're just like all in one, like here it is. Here's a chunk of change that we need and awesome, you know, done. But I really love what you guys have done with Seed and Spark because of that wedding registry option because it, it almost puts the onus on the filmmaker to show the responsibility, show the transparency of like this is where all this stuff goes to. Right. Almost like a line item, almost like it right out of the budget and this is what we have. And I, I think it's genius to say if you can't help us contribute the cash, do you actually have it that you can donate yeah. or loan? Just in genius that way. Well, thanks. So we see that filmmakers use it a lot for equipment, uh, for locations, for services like legal, um, you know, makeup artists. There are artists who come and want to contribute their time to be part of projects that they really love. Um, and I think also as, as myself, an avid uh, supporter of crowdfunding projects, I like it. You know, I don't have a ton of money. Um, so if I'm going to give five or ten or twenty five dollars, if it's a fifty or hundred thousand dollar pot, I don't feel like I'm making much of a dent. But if somebody says you can fund a day of catering for twenty five dollars for one of our crew members, that makes me feel really useful. Mm -hmm. um, it makes me feel kind of powerful, and it makes me connect to the people who are making this work. Um, a couple of the other things that distinguish us is um, we're purpose built for staged financing. So um, if you are uh, raising for pre-production um, and you're going to raise a small amount and then you do all your – or let's say you raise for development. You do all your development. You want to come back and raise money for production. You don't have to open a new crowdfunding page and figure out how to get all those previous supporters over to that page. It uses the same page for each film that you launch with us. Um, so you can aggregate funders and followers across multiple campaigns, which you see filmmakers doing on all platforms. Ours just m sort of bakes it into the process. I see. Uh, the other thing is that audience building isn't done when the campaign is finished. So um, you can gather supporters. These are the people who are contributing goods, uh, cash, and services to your campaign. Or you can gather followers. And the symbol on our website is like a high five. Um, <laughs> these are people who are like, I love what you're doing. Cool. Um, and they, uh, they'll get your updates. They earn sparks, which I'll get to in a moment. Okay. Um, and these are people who are, you know, basically identifying themselves as early audience, right? They're saying, hey, keep me posted. I care about what you're doing. And we see that at the end of a film campaign, filmmakers have typically grown their audience about 30% beyond 
just their supporters. And then they can continue to gather followers long after the campaign is finished. So part of that is really to incentivize filmmakers to continue to keep the community apprised of their progress. So often, and I've donated on other sites or contributed on other sites, and sometimes I'll get an update a year and a half later that's like, sorry, it's been so long since you heard from me. Right. Really, there's no incentive. Like, they got my money. Um, there's nothing I can do for them at this point. Um, but if, if filmmakers know that they can continue to grow their audience throughout the process, they're, they're much more likely to, you know, sort of continue to keep um, their existing community involved and give their existing community some stuff to evangelize with. Right. Um, and then the final thing is just that in addition to the incentives that filmmakers offer their, um, their supporters, um, we at Seed and Spark um, award sparks. So for funding, following, sharing, um, you can earn sparks. These are rewards points um, that, uh, uh, that you can spend to watch movies on our streaming <laughs> And then, of course, the big distinction between us and the others is that we have guaranteed distribution built into the platform. Um, so do you know when this is going to air? Um, I'll probably po- post it up uh, this weekend, like probably okay. this Sunday. So I can't tell you yet. Oh. But um, we... I can postpone it if you want. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> but um, one of the things that's really cool is that starting in a couple of weeks, we will be the first place where a successful crowdfunding campaign guarantees you meaningful distribution across multiple platforms. So not just ours and not just eligibility for our American Express partnership, but across other platforms where filmmakers can really um, make some dough. So um, that's something that we learned recently we could really do is help, you know, a legion of independent filmmakers negotiate um, broader distribution because we're seen as a curator. Oh, nicely. Yeah, because I was going to say that with uh, Seed and Spark, there's the development of the community, uh, the, the incentive of the sp- uh, the Spark, you know, the, the, to, to earn your points. But I love how you're able to show, like, those who are supporters, um, you can click and contact them. So if there's an opportunity to engage with others that are also liking the same things that you like. Um which is different than just sort of the other crowdfunding platforms because, like you said, I've done uh, – contributed to Sue some campaigns and, you know, you're right. Like a year goes by, I totally forgot about it. And then I'll get like an email and I'm like scratching my head like, what was this again? Yeah. So yeah. – um, it, 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 oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, all I was going to say is that the real incentive for us around the Sparks was, um, you know, if you contribute to a film – now, um, depending on the length of the film and the, 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 you know, the, the state of the process of the film, um, it might be 18 to 24 months before that film is going to be ready to be seen. And the cool thing about Sparks is that as soon as that project is successfully funded, you can go spend your Sparks to watch a different movie that might be similar or might be totally different right away. Um, so I think it's also really letting movie go like you know movie lovers know that by supporting movies you get greater access to watch them right right well it's it's uh you know i i just jumped on there recently because i remember um you know i've been hearing about you and uh the different um you know online i guess talks and blogs that you've been part of um the one that uh, craft truck did recently was a very good one you know in terms of with yourself with indiegogo and kickstarter and uh, your little dog, and <laughs> and uh, that was a good one. But it was it, until just recently, just to sit down and really explore through Seed and Spark. Um, I rented your movie, and uh, you know, just to kind of get a, a a good scope of you know everything that that you've done. And I was curious of like what got. I'm going to go backtrack a little bit, you know, here for you. But what got you into film? Like, it, there was there a moment when you were younger that just like there was a one film that sort of that hits you where you're like, wow, this is kind of magic or anything like that? Um, I'm sorry, in the, in our, in our funding campaigns? No, no, just you and per- just personally. I just want to backtrack oh, a little God, bit more. So, so many. I mean, I can start at the very beginning, which is to say when I was really little, I watched West Side Story until the VHS tapes wore out. Oh. And then, and then I moved on to, or maybe it was in the reverse order. And then I moved on to the Wizard of Oz. Okay. Um, and these were movies that loomed really, really large in my imagination for, you know, most of my life. Um, uh, 
the first independent movie I saw, and actually, as we're sitting here, I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it because I haven't thought about it in so long. Mm-hmm. Um, the first really indie movie I saw, a friend of mine dragged me to this local um, uh, movie theater in Sacramento, California, called the Tower Theater. It was like the the original spot where you know Tower Records started. Oh wow! And it, it was um, I think it's an Iranian film called Gabe. Hmm. Um, and it was this, it's this movie that starts with this elderly couple, um, cleaning this rug in this very routine way, but it, it ends up going on this incredible journey of how the figures in the Gabe and this rug sort of happened to come to be. And it wasn't a linear narrative and it was pretty experimental and mostly it was kind of like a color exploration. Yeah. Yeah. I'm but it was you. it impacted me so deeply. I remember like sitting in the theater seat and feeling like I had been crushed or something and the credits rolled and the lights came up and I was just sitting there. I couldn't move and that was really the first time I sort of woke up to this the the unique storytelling power of film. It might have been the first subtitled film I ever watched. Interesting. I think like that isn't that like the hope for all of us when we why we fall in love with film in the first place is we're like longing for this sort of transformation process to happen. And like, you know, when it happens, we're just, we're completely, you know, satisfied or just hungry for more. Like it, it, it's supposed to like spearhead you to like other inspirations and in the times when you don't quite get it, you know, there's something deep seated where you're like, dang it. I wish, I wish I could be have uh, more transformation. Yeah. But, um, how are you? Oh, so so anyhow, I wanted to ask you. So, how did you come across uh, putting together uh, like the water and getting in touch with all these uh, you know other uh, talented female fi- filmmakers? Because I know that this film, like the water, set up this whole trajectory for Seed and Spark. It did. Um, so, uh, in the summer of 2010, I was. Um, producing, co-producing uh, a sold-out run of a very famous um, Scandinavian play called Hedda Gabler. And um, in the course of putting together that play, I was working with a really established New York director who, you know, taught acting classes and brought in all these young, um, you know, actors and people to help on the play, cast them in the play, things like that. And the assistant director was Caroline Von Kuhn, the star of the play, Caitlin Fitzgerald. I had a role in the play as well. Um, uh, Emily Alexander Wilmoth was the uh, stage manager. Salome Krell was the company manager. And Susan Main was the vocal coach, working side by side with the director and with the actors. Um, And we fell in sort of creative love, all of us together, over the course of, you know, the many, many weeks of rehearsal um, the many months of preparation and, um, and all of the, you know, all of the things that go into theater, right? So you're, you're together during the day for rehearsals, you're together in the evening pre-show, you're together post-show. Um, you learn about people in a lot of different capacities and we became very, very close friends and really desired to continue to be collaborators. And at that time, Caitlin was making a movie with Ed Burns called Newlyweds. Um, and this is, this is the film that he famously shot for $9,000 or so he claims. <laughs> the, the um, price of the ins- EO, E&O insurance. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Um, no, I, yeah. So I always put that in scare quotes because, of course, he has a production company that covered all of the other costs that would normally go into. Right. Uh, and also, if you're Ed Burns, the entirety of Lower Manhattan sort of unfolds for you <laughs> anytime you need it. They'll be like, yes, we'll shoot out all these customers. Please, you know, come shoot here. Um uh, but she brought me to set and Ed Burns and his very tiny team, and I, by which I mean it was one cinematographer with a 5D camera handheld yeah. and a sound guy, and that was it, convinced me, uh, as naive as I was, that, you know, it'd be easy to make a movie. Look, look how little it takes. <laughs> um, and, of course, if you're Ed Burns and if you have guys you've been working with for 10 years and if you're shooting a run-and-gun style mockumentary that you can sort of write as you shoot and, and all of those things, um, 
you can probably do it for really cheap and really simply. But um, when Caitlin and Caroline sort of started to hone in on a story that they wanted to write together, what they handed me was a contemplative indie drama set in Maine Mm -hmm. um, in the summer. And so all bets were off, right? We had to spend a lot more money. We had to bring a lot more crew. There was a lot of extras. There was a lot of locations. Um, And these were all things that, you know, I, I, I had just a fragment of understanding. And I was very, very lucky to get um, this wonderful man who had gone to high school with my father, get in touch with him, um, Bar Potter, who's been making movies in L.A. for the last 30 years. And Bar sat on the phone with me for hours and hours, for weeks and weeks, and taught me how to produce a movie from, like, the start. Um, <laughs> Uh, but because he had started in law, um, it really started my, – my, my foundation happened in contracts, which I found very, very helpful. And it really helped me understand you know, the nuts and bolts of producing um, in a very clear way. So when we started thinking about how we were going to raise this last $20,000 we needed in order to greenlight the picture to be able to go to Maine, um, you know, it was the beginning of May and the only window we had was to do pre-production and production was, you know, June 6th to, uh, to like August 10th. That was the only time that all the people we needed were available and we were running out of time. And because Kickstarter and Indiegogo had sort of just gotten off the ground. Yeah. Um, we weren't really comfortable sending our, you know, our parents' friends and our friends' parents to, uh, to these new websites that they had never heard of and they didn't really understand. Like we didn't, we couldn't really use the word crowdfunding back then. Right. Exactly. Um, Now, uh, maybe a little known fact is that, um, and it's, I'm thinking of it because his picture is staring at me from the cover of Fast Company. My cousin, Charles Best, started a, uh, a company called Donors Choose. Hmm. Um, and Donors Choose has been, um, revolutionary in the philanthropic space around education and it allows uh, donors or allows school teachers to list the individual items they need um, to do sort of specialty programs for their students. And as a donor, I can go, well, I really want to fund the arts, and but I only have 150 bucks. And for 150 bucks, I can fund an entire classroom's trip to a museum and their notebooks and their pencils. So I could select that and fund it. And 100% of what I, you know, what money I put in goes into their project. Um, and it, you know, it's revolutionized not just philanthropy, but you know, edu- the, the education system in the U.S. I mean, what he's doing now is just remarkable. Um, so I think what is really interesting moving forward um, is is, or what I thought was really interesting moving forward from there was, could we take this model, which we identified as being like a wedding registry, and use it for film? If people knew exactly what it was they needed that we needed, would they maybe fund the stuff that was interesting to them? And, uh, and so I typed a list of things into our little WordPress website back when we were the untitled Camden, Maine film project. <laughs> and I sent it out to everyone uh, we knew and we, um, we raised $23,000 in cash in 30 days and hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans and gifts of locations and goods and services. Right. Um, and that, that, and we were off, you know, that's amazing. And then, um, but you built seed and spark, wasn't it to help even do your own crowdfunding to finish up the, um, uh, like the water film? No, so we didn't have, Seed and Spark didn't exist until long after uh, Like the Water was on the festival. Okay, circuit. so my time so, frames off. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it all, I mean, it all runs together. It was an <laughs> incredible time. So we went into post in September of 2011 for yeah. Like the Water, and I started shopping around this idea of something called the Independent Media Wish List, which was a crowdfunding tool that was uniquely suited to building audiences. Because, of course, as a first-time producer, I hadn't yet, faced the distribution challenges. And so I didn't really understand that a new crowdfunding portal wasn't going to be useful unless it was really meant to tackle distribution. So the evolution of Seed and Spark really followed 
kind of the evolution of Like the Water. And at the point that Like the Water, there, there's Alistair chiming in, um, <laughs> at the point that Like the Water moved into the, distrib- into, into the distribution phase and I started to learn how incredibly broken the system is and how incredibly skewed against filmmakers it is, that's when, um, that's around when we realized that if we weren't also helping filmmakers monetize distribution, we weren't going to be a real value add to the community. Right. Let me ask you something. You have an amazing skill set. Skill set because you know you you went out. You made you helped produce this first feature film, but that's you know created Seed and Spark, or at least led to the creation of Seed and Spark. And Seed and Spark is, you know, um, I don't. I'm actually just um, curious at how or how you see yourself uh, rallying the troops together to form a company like this. How many how many people do you have working for Seed and Spark now? Um, we're we're seven total now. That's still amazing. You know, yeah. with the how, and you're mentioning your you know nonchalantly your c- cousin Charles Best. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. Right. So I just quickly googled and checked them out, and I I think I've read this article before. So it's like. You know, are, do you come from a family of entrepreneurs, or that was was that part of an upbringing, or like those uh, the the mindset uh, to to solve problems in that way? So I think I think the short answer is is kind of, and also not necessarily. Um, my mother might say she has no idea where it comes from, <laughs> and my father might say, "Well, he always said, do what you love, and the money will follow.'" So. Um, I, from a pretty young age, like was kind of a take charge kid. And I didn't realize this until maybe a year ago when my mom and I were talking about like, why did I do this to myself? Was actually the conversation. (laughs) Why, why would I, um, you know, consign myself to such a difficult, uh, life? I mean, entrepreneurship, uh, sounds really sexy in the media and behind the scenes. It's, it's, really scary. You know, there's a lot of unknowns every day. Um, but she reminded me, which I had forgotten that like, oh yeah. So I organized prom and senior ball and in (laughs) college I like led several groups of different kinds of things. And, um, and I think if I looked back, I would realize I was sort of always wanting to organize stuff Mm -hmm. and make it work well. Um, But I think most of it now comes from a long, long, uh, many or many, many years in the restaurant business. Um, I was running pretty big restaurants in my mid 20s. Um, So I learned a lot about two things that I think are really important. Um, And the the first is, of course, um, organizing and training a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second, I think more importantly is understanding when your team has like fundamental disagreements in their, um, in their priorities. And, and so in a restaurant, you're, it, it's a little bit like running a pirate ship, yeah. um, which is to say, you know, the hosts, the servers, the kitchen, um, the management, everybody has conflicting priorities and the general manager's job is to kind of like rally everybody to say, you know, this direction. Don't forget, you know, we're sailing this way. Don't, don't take your eye off the ball. And frankly, a film set is really similar. Mm -hmm. Um, so in many ways, when I got on set, I was like, Oh, I've been here all along. Like this feels really familiar to me. And the thing that I never liked about restaurants and that as an actor years later, I never liked about film sets is I never understood why everyone was angry. Um, there was an old, uh, waitress, who once said to me, you know, it ain't life and death, honey. It's just lunch and dinner. (laughs) And that really stuck with me. Um, And so the way that I ran restaurants and ran my teams was to remind them that, like, no matter how bad it gets, um, it ain't life and death, right? And on film sets, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Yes, you can. Okay, fine. (laughs) So we had two rules on my sets. Rule number one is nothing is fucked. (laughs) <laughs> and rule number two is if something is fucked, refer to rule number one. Um, because we're just, you know, we're not saving lives. And so it's really important to remember that, you know, the absolute worst possible thing that could happen is there's a movie that doesn't get made. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think um, we've tried as hard as we can to maintain that mentality as we've grown seed and spark as well. Cause man, we've been throwing some curveballs along the way. <laughs> um, so 
I don't know. Does that answer your question at all? Yeah, it does because I'm I'm curious, and I think that's you know for this for my my website and my podcast trying to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs one of these missing elements is the ability to rally people together for a sure. common cause and you have this knack for it and um i'm definitely inspired and impressed taking your feature film experience and going i'm starting a company and you know <laughs> like legit like you've got like you said you said seven people you got developers um yeah. and you're and we just saw, closed a round of funding yeah there you go yeah. so and, you know, to have yourself step back and, you know, you're probably just moving forward all the time. But for somebody from on the outside checking in, it's like, well, what is the sort of the secret sauce that you're able to rally everybody together to say, what do you think about this idea? We're moving forward. Are you in? That type of a thing. I'll tell you what the secret sauce is. And it's a thing that I think you and I are sort of both in service of. I believe I'm starting a business. And therefore, I need capital for the business, I need team members, and I need a plan, not just for year one, but for years two through five. Right. And I think the, the film business has never sort of raised filmmakers to really understand that when you're making a movie, you're starting a company, you have to start an LLC, you have to raise capital, you have to build a team, and that film doesn't go away once you're bored with it. You still have to do those tax returns and provide reports to those um, investors forever, for the <laughs> entire life of the film. And so the thing that I think is, is interesting about your question is it, it really highlights something that I think is like a fundamental misconception, which is that every single film is a business. And every single filmmaker is an entrepreneur, whether they like it or not. Right. And the fact is, if they don't like it, then it's going to be really, really hard to get stuff done because this is the world that we live in. We live in a world in which most films are made as if they are little startups and um, and there has to be a plan for success and you have to plan to live with that film for a lot longer. I mean, it used to be that, you know, you make a film, you sell it to a distributor and then you wash your hands of it and walk away and move on to the next one. Right. And that, that just isn't happening in a way that helps filmmakers make a living. So the filmmakers who really want to make a living now have to behave like entrepreneurs, as you often say. And that means simply believing that you are starting a company and, mm -hmm. and treating it like you're starting a company. Um, so I, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's just fun, you know, having the conversation and, and having the talk and, and watching what you guys are doing. And, and like you said, it's early on in the inception of Seed and Spark, but I can yeah. see where it's going. I can see where it could t um, really shoot forward uh, above the other crowdfunding platforms because once – it's interesting because it almost feels like a film has more value prior to being made than when it's actually made. I've seen, um, like later this afternoon, I have this live Hangout show that I started on Google Hangouts called Film Marketing Fridays. And the concept there is just to be like this pseudo webinar, live webinar, just to talk shop with filmmakers and try to answer sort of the marketing questions, the sort of the last barrier for filmmakers. And this is concept of like, well, what are the sort of the real numbers of, you know, um, electronic sell through and Internet video on demand and that type of a thing. And it's pretty shocking. You see some of the returns and you realize that, you know, a lot of filmmakers are actually making more money through their crowdfunding efforts, you know, to make the product. But the the actual revenue um, afterwards is not uh, meeting up to, you know, meeting up to the right. budgets and so on. So it's right. I, it'd be interesting to see if. Um, the next round of uh, inception of filmmakers in terms of uh, crowdfunding is to understand to like, okay, now you got to start adding in the profits right off the bat. Because if you get this momentum swell anyway to raise the budget, just because you can raise $100,000 doesn't necessarily make the movie for 100000 you know? That's right. It, and so, No, I mean, filmmakers have to get really savvy about reverse engineering their budgets, right? So figure out who... What is the actual size of the actual audience for this film? Um, and, you know, we still have filmmakers quoting us demographics when we talk to them about who their audience is. Right. And, and, and that means they're just not, you know, they're not doing the legwork, right? So you have to figure out what is the actual size of the market that you're selling into. And oftentimes it's not very big. Sometimes the actual size of the actual audience who will watch your film might be, you know, twenty to 50,000 people. And if it's twenty to 50,000 people who aren't willing to pay more than $5 each, 
Well, that says a lot about the maximum you can make your film for if you sold it to every single person you think wants to buy it. Um, And so I think we will move into an era of more responsible budgeting. I think we're moving into an era where filmmakers have a lot more tools available to them to make smart decisions around these sorts of things. Um, I think, you know, there's an uphill battle in the way filmmakers are currently educated. They're still educated as auteurs. And of course, there is a lot that you need to know technically to make a film successfully. Um, But, you know, when filmmakers are like, but, you know, I'm already good at this thing. I have to be good at business, too. And they're they're talking to me as a CEO. I'm like, "Uh, uh, yes, yes, you have to be good at a few more things if you want to run your own company. Um, And that's and we they're totally learnable skills. And the cool thing is most of what goes into growing a flourishing company and a flourishing relationship with your customer is just good storytelling. And that's already in a filmmaker's wheelhouse. Yeah, it's interesting. You think that um, there's this whole movement within the internet marketers and online entrepreneurs that are t- touting like how important storytelling is for them to market their um, their goods and wares and their services. And you think that with filmmakers having brought up, and sort of, like you said, in terms of the training of um, having to craft story, they should be they sh- should already be better marketers <laughs> right. to some extent. But um, yeah, I-, I was curious, what are your thoughts are now that um, as you're building it, what do you see the future for, for independent film in terms of the middle class? Like um, you kind of mentioned a little bit at the beginning about the goal of Seed and Spark to provide sort of the marketplace or a, a f- infrastructure to allow uh, sustainable living uh, as a middle class or f- uh, filmmakers. Yeah. Um, but you can maybe li- elaborate a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, if, if filmmakers are building relationships with their audiences from the very beginning and each film builds on the audience of the last film, um, it isn't long before, you know, by film two or film three, you have a large enough audience that you can start not only making for larger, making larger budget films, but also, um, guarantee distribution, um, in a, in a much more, uh, sustainable way. Right. So if you know, if you already have on your email list, the 20 to 50,000 people you're going to reach out to when your film is finished, who've been following you all along. Um, that's a pretty good position to start in. So uh, you make a film and you go to a festival and you get a, a, for example, a small distribution offer, an MG of 10 to 15,000 or even $50,000. If you've already got 50,000 people on your existing email list, you can walk away from that MG and know you can make more money on your own, right? right? So part of it is helping filmmakers make their own IP more valuable. Um, And part of it, and I think this is really important, is that there are two things happening at once. And the first is that filmmakers are really starting to understand that – They can't just make something behind closed doors anymore. Like tech companies, they've got to build an MVP, a minimum viable product. They've got to take it to market and see who cares about it. They've got to know a lot about those people who care about it so they know how to reach them, how to talk to them, how to keep them, Um, and then, you know, how to monetize them when the time comes. The other side of it is, um, I think, a tremendous trend in – we'll call it conscious consumption of content. So, you know, in the 70s, we got conscious a little bit around our food. That was the beginning of the farm-to-table movement. In the 80s, we started to get more conscious about our clothes, although I would argue we've really taken a major backslide on that. Mm. Um, We've started to get a little bit more conscious about our consumer electronics. Um, But the the millennial generation, the YouTube generation, um, is used to having a very direct what feels like very personal connection with the creators who make the stuff that they love. And they're willing to bypass a whole lot of third-party gatekeepers and watch on their mobile phones or their tablets or their laptops in order to stay connected to the creators who matter to them. So these are consumers who've fundamentally been trained to care more about the people, the creators, than they do about the outlet. Um, and that's really, really good for creators because that means um, you have this entire generation um, who's moving into being, you know, the largest consumer group in the nation um, 
who really wants their creators to succeed and feels good about spending their money when they know that the creators will take the most benefit. And in fact, have such a relationship with the creators that they're not really interested to support the third party gatekeeper. They really want to make sure that the creators are the ones who are benefiting. So, um, so I think, you know, the, the sort of, um, the two trends that are following each other, and one is, is filmmakers understanding how to identify and speak to their audiences, and the other is audiences really caring that the creators who matter to them are, um, are sustained. I think actually what you're going to see moving forward is a, a trend towards more meaningful content. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I think you'll get more diverse voices. Um, which is really important. God, there was a, a thing on NPR in Los Angeles today about um, the lack of diversity on screen, and it's so utterly shocking. Um, the 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 roles assigned to actors versus the demographics of the people who. I'm sorry, that's my dog growling in I the know, background. I love Alistair. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I just hear this. Um, I know he gets he gets really mad when we talk about diversity statistics in film because it's just <laughs> dismal. Um, Frankly, I think, you know, we also have a lot of audiences who've been left out of the equation for a really long time. And one of the most interesting things uh, I listened to was um, a woman saying that um, Asian American speaking roles in film and television has gone up from 2.2 to 4.4% over the last six years, Hmm. which is okay, I guess, if you consider that... um, the Asian population in the U.S. is about 5%. So you're like, okay, that's representative. Unfortunately, the study includes every time like an extra comes on and has an under five spot, uh, you know, and says, yeah. you know, your T, sir, or whatever. Um, so when you're talking about, you know, main, mainstream, main roles, um, the, the stats are really dismal. If you go online and you look at YouTube, um, you have like absolute sensations of Asian American stars who have millions and millions of subscribers. Oh, I know. So, so what, <laughs> what we're seeing is that um, audiences who've been underserved by the last 110 years of motion pictures are bypassing all of the traditional outlets and going straight to the source. Um, so what's really exciting to me is that we're going to see new diverse voices serving profoundly underserved audiences, and it's going to happen really fast. Yeah. That's oh my gosh, what a way to sum that up. And I'm I want to tie it right back into Seed and Spark because I know that you're building something like that. Like so, if a fan, um, what is Seed and Spark doing, or or what in your perspective of helping sort of harness sort of like a kind of like a marketplace to allow people or artists to be discovered or filmmakers to be discovered or you know because like you said, um, my daughter, she'll just you know YouTube. Boom. Right. She's got all her YouTube stars. And I know, like you said, like Nia Higa is one of her favorites, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, but she also through Instagram follows a lot of artists. And so this is beyond just filmmakers, but just artists, uh, uh, graphic artists that are just, you know, doing these amazing uh, renderings and they're, you know, selling it up on something like Society6. And so my daughter, Your daughter now, sounds awesome, by the way. <laughs> thanks. She's a huge. Uh, she, they just left, actually, to go see Guardians of the Galaxy. She's all into Marvel and she's, you know, and she's not, she's ha- having a hard time identifying with kids here locally that, that have the same um, affinity for her uh, comic book fan- uh, fanaticism. And mm-hmm. she finds it online and she yep. finds all these artists and, and she's showing me this stuff and, and it's just exploding. You're right. And you're just watching them. They have no concept of what is, what was in the past, you know, in terms yep. of these are the people they're co- connecting to directly. Um, and she's buying artwork directly. She, I mean, yep. we're dishing out 25, 50 bucks for an original drawing that she, of a fan that she, or an artist that she follows. And now that yep. she's, now she's getting fans and uh, from her artwork and so on. And you're right. And so I was curious of, I really like what Seed and Spark, um, you know, has kind of put together, like you said, for the, the filmmaker in that respect to kind of harness that community. Um, and is there sort of a marketing plan to sort of push that community a bit further or, or what your, what are your thoughts and ideas about that part, um, in relation to the spark? Yeah. So I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about this in the office recently because, um, obviously it would be helpful for us to have a big celebrity campaign to drive a ton more traffic to seed and spark. Um, our campaign success rate crushes our competitors. (laughs) You know, we're at a 74% 
lifetime success rate of, of crowdfunding campaigns. So the community is really sustaining. And like 10 to 15% of each campaign these days is by serial backers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is actually really an incredible chunk. Like we are building a community of people who are funding many films each month. Um, and that piece is, is really exciting. Um, we, uh, one of the things we've been talking about is, well, it would be n- nice for awareness to have, you know, a celebrity come and crowdfund on Seed and Spark and bring a bunch of people who don't know about us on the one hand. On the other hand, the tools that we're building, we only learn if they work, if a filmmaker who's not yet famous can su- succeed with them. Yeah. So we've stayed really, really focused on um, uh, this education tour that we started in April. Mm-hmm. Um, since we started the education tour, actually, the crowdfunding success rate on Seed and Spark has been 100%. Um, I by no means think we can maintain that, but um, <laughs> it's pretty astonishing uh, to see how effectively the tools are working. Um, and I think w- what else is really interesting to us is that if the filmmakers are really well prepared, they are the best you know, ambassadors, but not for the platform. I mean, Seed and Spark ultimately should be a very, very thin line and set of tools um, in between a filmmaker and their audiences. And then by aggregating those audiences, we can help filmmakers mutually benefit from one another's work, right? So um, we're really trying to cultivate kind of the culture of plenty in which an audience for you is also an audience for me as opposed to an audience for you means you're taking one away from me. Right. Um, I think we've spent too long in the in, sort of in the culture of scarcity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, obviously, as you delve into the world of entrepreneurship, there's the differences is right off the bat. They have the mindset of abundance um, versus, like you said earlier, just sort of the old traditional means of, of making films. We all like kind of crammed into this concept, like maybe the lucky few, you know, less than 1% actually get to play in that playground. So it, it harnesses that sort of scarcity mindset and to see all these walls being broken down to say, no, 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 it's open. It's open yep. and it's open and it's wide. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's really fascinating. We can wrap it up here as we get the 45 minute mark, but, um, I'm really excited to see where everything goes with Seed and Spark and, so and much. to tell other about other filmmakers because I think I'm watching a lot of filmmakers and I've seen a shift go from Kickstarter to Indiegogo. I've seen a lot of uh, campaigns go there. I think probably the number one reason is that <laughs> I think a filmmaker is like, I'll take any money I can get as yeah. opposed to like, if it doesn't happen, doesn't happen. But I think if they, I um, I definitely want to, you know, tout more about what Seed and Spark is doing because this concept of the, you know, the... Um, you know, the the wedding list you know the, yeah. the that that is ingenious but also seeing the community grow is uh, ex- is exceptional so and i will just say this um i think we have to put to bed the keep what you can campaigns i think they're very dangerous uh for the health and well-being of crowdfunding into the future um if if you need $20,000 to do what you're promising in your pitch video and you raise two, there's only two scenarios. One is that you don't do what you promise, in which case the people who gave you that $2,000 feel slighted. And the other thing is that you try to do what you promised at 10% of the budget that you thought you could do it at, in which case you still disappoint the people who gave you that $2,000. Crowdfunding is a privilege that is bestowed upon us by the audiences who trust us. And therefore, their trust and our reputation should be the most important thing we attempt to maintain. And I I fundamentally think that the Keep What You Can campaigns don't do that. If you're going to set a realistic goal based on the size of your audience, you should be prepared to succeed. And if you don't, you should go back to the drawing board and figure out what's not working before making that film. Interesting. Um, that's really, really important to me. And that's pretty much what a tech company would do because if they, they either know whether or not they have a product that a customer base was going to willing to pay for or not. Yeah. And if there's something wrong where it's not getting there, it may not necessarily be in the pro in the actual product. Sometimes it's the marketing or the message or it's, you know, there's a bunch of different factors that have to be addressed to make it uh, more foolproof. Yeah, and if if there's a problem in the marketing and the message, that speaks to what kind of distribution problems you're going to have. So part of it, I think, is really understanding that if you are thinking about making a movie, you have to be thinking about distributing your movie. 
Um, and that, you know, there are people absolutely who simply want to make art for art's sake. And I think that's wonderful. Um, and, you know, if they don't care about making money from their art or, or building sort of a sustainable need, that's fine too. Um, but I think, you know, that's a, that's, those are sort of a different set of people and we may not be the best platform for those people. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I think like, I remember hearing something about Kickstarter on one of the interviews or something like that. And, you know, their goal was to simply like, if something didn't exist and it does exist, that to them is a success. And that kind of sort of, you know, corroborates with the idea of like art for art's sake. But as things grow and as they evolve, like you said, the the focus of Seed and Spark is like, no, 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 no. There's much more to that. And there is a, a success pattern because the bigger picture is, you know, not just making the one film or a product to, to be successful, but to build that su- sustainable uh, career that yeah. you can develop as an artist. And yeah. that is really, really um, fascinating and, and encouraging what you guys are doing at Seed Spark. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, Twitter works wonders. And I had a great, like I said, I had a great time with Stephanie Palmer. So when you hit me up, like, oh, I love her. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. So um, I will follow up with you later as we wrap great. all this stuff up. But cool. uh, give her your little uh, Alistair good hug. I will. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, gosh, just continue with the the success and, and growth you guys are doing, and um, it's exciting. It's really exciting. It's very ins- inspirational too. So um, keep rocking, Emily. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll do. I'll follow up here. We're all done. Thanks. Okay. Thanks so much, Scott. <laughs> okay. Bye Cheers. now. Bye bye. So that concludes my interview with Emily Best of Seed and Spark, and uh, it's pretty impressive. You, I have a feeling that. Something's going to happen in the distribution landscape of independent film because once it's identified that a distribution company may not be needed anymore, uh, these distribution companies need to become almost marketing companies or become a place that has uh, has built their own marketplace uh, to allow filmmakers to flourish. And I think we're going to see a shift like that in the next couple of years. So definitely keep an eye out on Seed and Spark because I think they're ahead of the game in terms of harnessing sort of that community and building a um, a dialogue and uh, sort of a, a, a showcase, a place for film, independent filmmakers to be and to um, earn a living from it. So like always, you get a free gift if you go to freegearguide.com. And this is basically a gear guide, an equipment list of everything that I use to make a feature film for $500 with no crew. And again, that is at freegearguide.com. Mine's a little simple gift to you. And I thank you again for tuning in to the Film Trooper Podcast, and I will see you next time. <laughs>